the current permission of your distinguished Rosh Hashiva and the Rabbanim and family, Talmidim, graduates for Bulim, Rabotai, Gvura. Gvura does not mean strength. Koach means strength. Gvura means heroism. I will be quoting our great Rebbe of Yosef Dov Alevi Soloveitchik Zatzal. And in our circles, he was just affectionately known as the Rav. So I won't have to mention his name each time. The Rav. In 1962, in his hometown in Boston, at MIT, the Rav delivered a, a fascinating lecture called Catharsis in which he dealt with the difference between koach and buah, strength and heroism. He defines koach as being physical might, it could be economic clout, it could be political influence, it could be social. There are many, many areas in life that a person can express his or her koach. Vua has little to do with strength. Vua is going against the stream. When we talk about the Hashmonaim in the Hanukkah story, so is Rabin Biyad Me'atim. It was very, very small numbers who were able to be victorious over large numbers. On paper, it didn't make sense. They were Giborim. They were real heroes. We know that every morning we say two brachot. And sometimes the morning brachot, we say them so quickly that we don't even realize how significant each and every bracha might be. And I remember the Rav saying that, why don't we just have one bracha? Thank you, God, for waking up in the morning and let's get on with our business. No, we have a bracha of opening our eyes a bracha of getting dressed, taking your first step. I mean, these are like breaking down the morning procedure to component parts. I remember back in the States, we used to have two different, I know here too, I have, it's not the same thing, but we had two different types of tax forms. It was the short form and the long form. So the short form was for most people that didn't make too much money, and we just had some income, and we just paid our taxes, whatever it was, it was deducted up front. The long form was when you really itemized everything that you were doing. You usually did that if you wanted some type of a refund of some form. The Rav said that the brachot in the morning is the long form. And when you say halal, praise to God, you must necessarily itemize all the steps and take nothing for granted. So we have a bracha, Ozer Yisrael Bigvura, and we have a bracha, Hanotein Layaev Koach. Ozer Yisrael Bigvura has something to do with heroism, even though that doesn't seem to be the context. Bigmara in Masachet Brachot, in the last chapter, teaches us that we ought to make these brachot as they are happening, not as we customarily do come to Shul, come to Beit Knesset, come to Beit Nadrash, open up a Siddur, and there they are. And we say them one after the other. The Gemara suggests 
that if you're up at um, four in the morning on a kibbutz and you hear the, the roosters, so you get up and you say, look at that. In nature, the rooster knows how to tell you that it's morning. And when you, when you wash your hands, when, when you open your eyes, every stage, say the bracha as it has it. And by the way, the Rambam believes that's the way it ought to be done. But the Ashkenazim uh, have a different take on this. And we do the brachot one after the other. And as it was in history, the Sparadim do that as well today. Very few people do it the way the Gemara and subsequently the Rambam suggested. But what the Rav asked was, why do we have two brachot, Ozer Yisrael Big Bura, which has something to do with girding your loins, but nevertheless, Bura, heroism, where's the heroism? And Hanotein Layaef Koach, God who takes the, the exhausted person and instills him, invigorates him with strength. So that phrase, Noten Koach, is lifted straight out of the book of Yeshayahu, Yeshayahu. chapter 40. Noten Koach. What's interesting is that in Shulchan Aruch, it's only a suggestion to say the bracha Noten Koach. It's not mentioned with Mara. The Chazal spoke of Gvura, heroism. Koach was introduced in the Middle Ages. So much so, that some of the poskim said, because it wasn't mentioned by our sages, by our chachamim in the days of the Gemara, perhaps you should be saying it without the requisite name of God and majesty in the bracha, not to say Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Malach Olam, but just to say Baruch Hanoten Layayef Koach, as if Baruch etc. Hanoten Layayef Koach. There's such a suggestion as well, but that's not our custom. We say the full-blown bracha, okay. Why was it introduced in the Middle Ages? And the Rav had a very, very interesting idea. He says, there's no doubt that Chazal, our sages, were not lauding Koach. They were lauding Vura, heroism. Koach is innate. You're born with Koach. You develop, you cultivate talents that ultimately give you a uh, uh, head start over others. You can become a notch above the others. Beseda, fine. Koach. But unfortunately, in 1096 in Europe, there was the calamity of the First Crusade and the history of medieval Jewish communities, especially in Ashkenaz areas of France and Germany. We were almost obliterated. And we beg God, we need a little bit of koyach, a little strength. We're not going to make it. Okay, we want to be religious. We want to be spiritual. But if we can't stand on our feet, we're being battered over and over and over again. The Rav said it wasn't an accident that this enters into the Siddha in the Middle Ages and specifically in the Ashkenazi ritual. Not, a, not an accident. But nevertheless, principal bracha is gvura. And this he spoke in MIT, not to a Jewish audience, to a mixed audience, academics. We should understand some ABCs about Yahudis. You have to train to be a person of Gvura. 
So we just heard that Mrs. Chappelle had an upbringing that allowed that type of gura personality to come forth. That's not an accident either. The Gemara tells us in Masechet Rachot, Whoever does not say those brachot, those two blessings after Shema, in the morning and the evening, and emet in at night, did not fill his obligation. Which obligation? as it says, we say this every Shabbat in the Shir Shalom, to praise. God of his greatness is chasadim in the morning and faith at night. What does that mean? On a very allegorical sense, in a very allegorical sense, our sages have always seen redemption as daytime and calamity as nighttime. The same Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Shemichad that said in the morning at night, our sages were baffled. I remember in America, we had a one a day multiple vitamin. So why can't we have a one a day Shema? Why is it twice a day? So much so that there's a dispute between the Rambam and the Ramban, whether it's counted as one mitzvah in the scheme of 613 to say Shema twice a day, or there's an individual mitzvah to say Shema in the morning and another mitzvah to say Shema in the evening. They take up two spaces. That was Ramban's view because he understood that even though it's the same text, we're doing two different things. And this is what the Chachamim were trying to point out. What is the Emet Yatsiv Nachon in the morning and Emet Emunah at night? It's defining the uniqueness of Shema in the morning as opposed to nighttime. When everything is hunky-dory, everything's wonderful. Am Yisrael is in Eretz Yisrael. Beit HaMikdash is up and functioning. And everything, this prophecy, this this and this that, it's glorious. So just don't forget that God gave us the ability to be there. When everything is yatsiv, nachon, kayam, yashar, everything is in order. It's nechmad, naim, it's beautiful and adorning. Don't forget, because there's a tendency to say what the Torah says, where are you? So how talented I am? No, 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 no. Just remember, the emet of the morning is at the time of Yatsiv Nachon Kayam But in Auschwitz, God wasn't so Nechmad Venaim. Who cares? You cannot relate to God in the same way, in the midst of tragedy, the way we can relate to him in the glorious daytime. So in Birkenau, in Bergen-Belsen, in Dachau, in Sobibor, there's no emet yatsiv nachon mikayam. You cannot say Shema Yisrael on that level. But there's another level. Emunat chabalelot. Bare bones faith. Emet the emunah. That is the Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. And we train ourselves day in and day out. And we hope 
and pray that our existence is an existence of daytime. But we are prepared, if God forbid, this be our life, to be thrust into a moment of Lila, of darkness. And we will survive. We will try to survive. But there are no guarantees. No guarantees. Several years ago, at Yad Vashem, there was a program. I thought it was a very nice program for Holocaust survivors who, you know, are aging and, and diminishing in numbers every passing day. Many, many Holocaust survivors did not speak to their own children about their experiences. And we can understand why. They did not want to open up the wounds again. They did it to protect their kids from even knowing about these horrors. But something fascinating has occurred. To the grandchildren, all of a sudden, they just open up and they come to schools and they talk to kids. And many times, you know, the, the children who are now the parents of these children and kids, they never heard these stories from their parents who are Holocaust survivors. So at Yad Vashem, they invited Holocaust survivors and I think very wisely did not make any distinction who the people were, men, women, whether they were religious or not religious, or any brand of religious or not religious, it was a mishmash, because that's the way it was in the camps also. They didn't have a camp for Belzechsidim and a camp for Litvaks, you know, from Varsha. No, it was everybody, everybody. We felt Kal Yisrael in the worst sense, in the best sense. So they're all together in groups of 20, and they invite psychologists, rabbis, historians, and basically it's a format to get people to talk. And it's a group, let's talk it out. And I was invited one occasion to just to lead a group, a lead, a group exchange with 20 people, Holocaust survivors, on the subject of faith after the Holocaust. And I felt this was an impossible task because I wasn't there. So how in the world am I going to speak about faith after the Holocaust? So I walked into Yad Vashem, and Vashem was a nice entrance, a nice mezuzah. And I looked at the, I stopped dead in my tracks. I looked at the mezuzah. What does it say in the mezuzah? I'm not talking about the Adam artist who made the beautiful cover. I'm talking about the parsha. Shema Yisrael Hashem Lokin Hashem Lachan. I looked up to Kadosh Baruch I said, look, you gave me talents. You taught me how to speak. You also know I'm not a shy guy. So I can come in and speak and try to do this. God, I'm speechless. I don't have to break the ice here. How do I talk to them? Do me a favor. Give me one idea. Just plant one idea in my head, and you know, I can take it from there. And I'm telling you, at one split second, standing at the threshold of Yad Vashem, all of a sudden, in my mind, Masechet Chagiga, Daf Yudalit on the base. Just like that. You know what's on Masechet Chagiga, Daf Yudalit on the base? The story of the four who entered into the Paradise, the orchard. Who are the four? So the says it was Ben Azai, four of the greats. Ben Azai, 
Ben Zoma, Acher, who was Elisha Ben Abuya, the teacher of Rabbi Meir, the student of Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva. They all four went into the orchard. And it's clear, it's an agadic, it's a, you have to figure out what's behind the story. And, and, and the Gemara tells us that only Rabbi Akiva comes out, Bishalom, in peace, with wholesome. One dies, one goes off the derech, as we call it. One this, one. What's this all about? This was said in the aftermath of the Bar Kokhba revolution debacle. And the debacle of the Bar Kokhba revolution was a shoah. Historians speak of between a million and two million Jews who lost their lives in a short period of time. And in the days of the Shoah, we had 18 million Jews. We lost a third. We did not have 18 million Jews in the days of Rabbi Akiva. We lost almost 2 million Jews at the time. We thought we were going to build a Beit HaMikdash. We had an independent state for a whole three years. We had a king who Rabbi Akiva thought was Mashiach. Shimon Bar Kuziba, Bar Kochba. And all fell apart. And there were deep theological issues. And if you think that the theological issues were amongst the masses, amongst the uneducated, not true. The greats of our Mishnah were struggling. How did this happen? And the Gemara tells us, four enter into the orchard. And only one comes out, okay. Okay being physically and spiritually okay. And three don't. And our Chachamim are not embarrassed to tell us that this happens. And we have to remember that they are also victims of the tragedy. Spiritual victims. I realized that once in a second we had this image, almost a, a flash from God. Okay, now you can get into Yad Vashem and sit down with them. And I start by saying as follows. I know that some of you, I don't know any of you, I know that some of you will tell me that you were religious before the Shoah and you remained religious and faithful afterwards. You see some people nodding. And I know there are some here who were religious before and completely not religious afterwards. A few more heads are nodding. And I know that there are some who are, didn't believe in anything before, they continue not to believe anything afterwards. Another few heads. And there are even some who are not religious or faithful before, and when they came out of it, they became Balei Chuvu. They started latching on to Torah. And a few more heads are now. They're all there. I said, ladies and gentlemen, it's all legitimate. They're all legitimate. And we're all here to talk about it. This is our Ba'am Nechnesulah Pardes. Everybody came in with his or her baggage and exited with his or her baggage. And it's different. And our Chachamim, our sages teach us, these, this is legitimate. That doesn't mean this is what we'd hope for. <laughs> we hope for 100%, but forget it. You're not going to get 100% after the experience of the Shoah. And therefore, whatever you are today, let's talk about it. So one gentleman stands up and says, and he's without a keeper. He says, um, I was in Bergen-Belsen, and I have to tell you 
that there is no God in this world. Okay. Okay. No God in this world. Fine. Talk about it. And he tells me, you know why I believe there's no God in this world? Because if there would be a God in this world, after I went, what I went through to, you know, believe in God, he said, that would be a chil Hashem. Yeah, there's a fellow believing God. We believe in God. He had to put God on the back burner. That's all. He couldn't deal with it. He just couldn't deal with it. And, and I believe that after 120 years, God will deal with his neshama compassionately. That's all. He was a victim of the Shoah. He was a korban. Very very So we have acts of heroism, no doubt. But I think to kick this off about some anecdotes of, of acts of heroism, that as Robert Kalinsky said correctly, the, beyond the Warsaw Ghetto that was just so famous, about the silent acts of heroism that took place day in and day out. So going back to that tragic era of the fall of Bar Kochba, you have Rabbi Kiva's prime student, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, in the cave with his son, Rabbi Al-Azhar. And they're in the cave 12 years, hiding from the Romans. Finally, they come out. And it was the second exit, without going into the details. They, the son, Rabbi Al-Azhar, a little bit more of a zealot. Nobody's going to observe anymore. Torah, it's finished. Destruction. And then they see some old gentleman on a Friday afternoon. And he's carrying two stalks of flour. Hadassim. What we put on the lulaf and etrog and Hadassim. Two stalks of Hadassim. And they asked him, where are you going with those stalks of, stalks of Hadassim? So, well, it's from the Shabbat. You, know, you buy flowers for, for the life, for Shabbat. So he's got two Hadassim. He said, why two? So he, the old man says, one is for Zahar at Yom HaShabbat, and one is for Shamor at Yom HaShabbat. We just recently read the Ten Commandments, and Sarah Dadi Brown. So the Zahar at Yom HaShabbat, remember the Shabbat, and guard the Shabbat, the second version of the Ten Commandments. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and the son of Rabbi Elazar realized that if he's still an old man there who remembers that there is a Shabbat, he remembers there's a Shabbat. And he remembers the two key words, Zahor and Shamor. And who is this gentleman? Is he a Talmud Chacham? Is he, is he, is he a, a scholar? No. Remember, they, in the four species, they represent four different types of Jews. The etrog has, has fla fragrance and has flavor, taste. So that's the person who's Talmud Chacham and also has performance. But there's the Hadas that has fragrance. And that is performance without knowledge. That's also important. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Rabbi Elazar, they realized we can we have something to build on. We have Hadassim Jews. We may not have Etrogim Jews, but we have Hadassim Jews. It's good enough. And we can build from the Hadassim Jews. My father, Shalom, was born in Berlin, 1926. He was there yet for Kristallnacht. Leil Abdullah, as we call it here. 38, November 38. Family was able to get out in 39 to New York. They got out. It was not, my father was not yet bar mitzvah. 
moving fast forward, my parents came in Aliyah in 93. And in 96, my father votes in the Israeli election for the first time. Comes out of the booth and says, I don't remember in Shulchan Aruch where it says, when you come out of the polling booth, my father tells me, I was there at the beginnings. I saw the burning shoals. I saw the Sifri Tyra outside on the street being trampled. I saw all this. Thank God I wasn't there for the continuation of what went on. And now I'm in Yerushalayim with children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren voting for a Jewish government in a Jewish state. You don't think I should make a Shekhyan? There was room for Shekhyan. And I remember my father telling me once, and it was a time of Sikhot before Rosh Hashanah. My father worked hard. He had to leave the house at 5.30 in the morning in Brooklyn and get a ride to get a, to, to his factory in, in, in New Jersey. Worked hard. So he didn't always have the opportunity in the weekday to go to shoot the Dabam with the Minion. But during Slichot, before Shana, he went earlier to get a, to take the train down to Manhattan, pick up a Minion. They said, again, we're starting the season of confession, Vidu Yashanu, Bagadu, Gazalu. Says, you know, then after the Shoah, says, God should make a kiddish that I'm still keeping Shabbos. Think about it. Not such a simple matter. That's a heroic act. It's a heroic act. You're going to continue making kiddish. So I have a son who's an officer in the Israeli army and he's captain in reserve now, the paratroop unit. But he does something more glorifying in his civilian life. He's an LL pilot. And I talk about it a lot. I talk about all my kids, Dr. Hashem. But he's the you know, pride and glory there. He wears a kippah, sits us out with trailer, with the blue trailer. You see him at the airport. He's a bentorah in his town where he lives in Palmon, he's a gabai who gives drashot. He reads the lanes, he's a torah, he's a clean kodesh, as he said. It's a good boy. Gives me upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> so when he was in the army once, he took a group of um, soldiers. You know, in Israel, we give the army soldiers um, tours of places in Israel to inspire them. They should understand what we're doing here and why we're uh, you know, willing to risk our lives for this country, for our people, who we are. So that particular tour, it was the old city of Yerushalayim, was a few days before Rosh Hashanah. And my son, Eitan, asked me if I can give the fellows a talk. Okay, fine. So I just asked him just to understand the level. I said, how many are religious soldiers, how many not? He says, there's one dati, one religious, 19 not. I said, that's great. God gives me before Rosh Hashanah, 19 fellows who are defined as not religious before Rosh Hashanah. And I'm going to say something to them. I said, do me a favor, have them sit by the opposite the Kotel, where they can overview Temple Mount. I'm going to talk about the Mizbeach. I'm going to talk about Abraham Avinu and the Akedah. I'm going to talk about the Shaifer, how it emanates from there. Let them get a view. Okay. And I tell them the thought that our Rebbe Rav Soloveitchik, the Rav, told us that on Sukkot, they would drape the altar, the Mizbeach, with Aravot. Now, Aravot is the fourth species that represents the Jew who has neither Torah nor Torah performance. And he is the one who's draping the symbolically the Mizbeach. Why? 
And the Rebbe said, because when it comes to self-sacrifice, every single Jew has a part. Every Jew. And we're not looking for scholarship here. We're not looking for a piety. We're looking for the readiness to speak exactly in the language of Abraham Avinu. Here I am. I'm ready to do it. And I once said in a shul here in Yerushalayim that when the Chazan begins Musaf on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that Hineni is the public proclamation of Hineni. We are all here. We're making that proclamation, no matter who we are. Neither side of the Mechitza. Everyone is declaring Hineni. And this I tell the fellows. You guys, you guys have made that decision already. You've made that call. You put on the uniform. You're ready to give up everything for Am Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael. Take 10 minutes of your time to, in two days' time and go to your neighborhood shul. Just listen to the shaykhah and connect with that moment of Abraham Avinu. I know I'm listening carefully. Okay, put it over nicely. Right before I started, my son Akan said, I was standing on the side. I just want to tell him a few things. Okay, whatever it was, it was, and he invites me to come over. After the talk, I asked my son, I said, by the way, what did you tell them before the talk? I told them that if anyone opens up their fat mouth when my father was speaking, they're not going home for a shot. <laughs> and he thought they were listening to the talk. There was a great rabbi, he was 30 years old, in the ghetto in Kovna, which is part of Lithuania. His name was Rav Oshri. And he was there on the spot, and he had to deal with questions that were posed to him by people. The very fact that people in the context of the Shoah were still willing to ask a question what does the halakha dictate under these dire circumstances is in itself a heroic act. No doubt about it, a heroic act. And, after, and he survives, and he, able, he writes down many of these subjects, and he puts it in a canister, and the canister survives. So that after the war, he actually retrieves it and puts out five volumes called Shelotu Chubot Nima Amakim, response to literature from the depth, from the depth. I mean, you can't get lower than that, with that. And they are remarkable. You know that the, my brother, Rabbi Yosef Adler from Tinek, in Yom HaShoah, in the neighborhood where they did a community wine, he would always read the questions. He said, the answers, you need a shiur to talk about the answers. But the questions, you can just call. The questions, one after the other. And, and, and it expresses the, the horror of what was going on. And at the same time, expresses the heroism of Jews who are willing to ask the question. The questions had nothing to do with, oh, yeah, I forgot to say, do I repeat the That's not what they were asking. A Jew comes to the ghetto of Kovna on the day before Sukkot, and he has a Muluf and a Trok. Nobody had a rule of in a throat, but he had. And he was on a mechanics detail to fix machinery. So he had a car. And he was going from place to place. 
And he was going to stay that first day of Sukkot in the ghetto. Wow! They're going to line up and everybody's going to make a bracha. He was leaving on Motza'e Shabbat, which would have been already the second day younger, but that's not the issue. The day of Sukkot was Shabbat, and a Shabbat we don't take the Luluf and the Adrak. And the people said, we want to make a bracha on the Luluf and Adrak. There will be no Luluf and Adrak tomorrow. And this is going to be most probably the last opportunity. And Rav Ashri kicks it around. And he it can go either way from a pure halachic point of view. So that you can do here in Beit Karim. You can kick it around nicely. And one Rav's going to say this, and the other Rav's going to say that. And you go out for lunch afterwards, and that's it. And before he renders a decision, the people grab the womb of an etrog and Shabbat and they make a bracha, one after the other. And it was after Sukkot, three weeks after Sukkot, that Rav Ashri meets an aging rabbi, Rav Shapiro, Elkanah Shapiro, who um, was not able to function, but he had a moment of lucidity. And he heard about this. And he said, the people did the right thing. Because if Chachamim would have ever imagined this kind of scenario, they never would have said no rule of on Shabbat. So these people, their Jewish intuition, they did right. This is already a happy story. But there was once where from the ghetto, the Nazis announced multitudes of people were taken out. And everybody knew what taken out meant no secrets any longer. There was not one family left without someone murdered just the day before. And they wanted to all get together just to give each other some warmth and compassion and say Kaddish together. And somebody had a question. One second. One of the reasons we say Kaddish is if God forbid the person sinned in life. So the soul can able to tell God, look, I left over children who are sanctifying God's name, no small matter. So it's going to stand as our my defense. But it was already pointed out by the Rambam that if a person is murdered because he or she is Jewish, that's called the, that's called sanctification martyrdom. There's automatic Ganadin, automatic Olamaba. And you don't need Kaddish. So maybe everybody standing here does not have to say Kaddish. And Rabashi was asked this question. And apparently, in the 14th century, this question was already raised after one of the pogroms. And ultimately, the resolution was, there are other reasons why we say Kaddish. And part of it has to do with the mourner himself or herself. You need it. You need to say Kaddish. You need to say that even though I've gone through this tremendous loss, God's name is going to be sanctified. There is a future. Rabbi mentioned Victor Frankl, future. If you do not declare that there's a future, you're lost. And that's what Kaddish is. It's a declaration of it will be. It will be. We're testifying that it will be. So Rabashri tells him, yes, we're all going to say Kaddish together. And they do. And he describes how awesome that was. There's a director at Yad Vashem, Avner Shalev, 
And he was in Auschwitz. And I heard him once at the Amuna College in Dhaka many, many years ago. It was before Hanukkah. And he was talking about his experience in Auschwitz, where we know that you need about 1,200 calories a day to, to, to survive. Trouble is, in the Western world, we need 3,000 calories a day, and then we're on diets for the rest of our lives. But in Auschwitz, just to get an idea, the nutrition was roughly 450 calories a day, which means it was starvation diet. And we know that 30% of those who um, passed the first selection at the train station already perished within the first three months from starvation, malnutrition. But the, um, they were given a slice of bread, half a slice of stale bread, with a little bit of, of a butter on it, gave a little bit of energy. Avner Shalev reports that a month before Hanukkah, he scraped off the butter and stuck it on the bottom of his bed. Now, the, you know, the bed wasn't a silly claustrophobic mattress, you know, don't get me wrong. If, if you've been to Poland, you know, it's just his board. And he stuck it on the bottom of the bed so that he will have something to make a candle for Hanukkah. And he took his garment and ripped some threads out and he made a wick and he put it into his butter. And they had people by the door to make sure no sentries were coming. And they weren't looking at the Shulchan Aruch about a half an hour of the, of the time. You know, they lit it under the bed. Everybody was there. After a few minutes, they blew it out. One candle every night, one candle, and so on. And he said, we beat them. We beat them. Because they not only wanted to kill us, and they did, unfortunately, they wanted to destroy everything about Yahadut. The Nazis in Machshimon, they wanted to have a museum in Berlin and other places, you know, of, of a museum of ancient of, of ancient history. This is what the Jews were all about. They have a museum, relics. And here Avni Shalev says we beat them, their game. We live Hanukkah camps. And when I was there once with the my high school students from Hashmonaim when my son was there, so we um we met up with a woman, Sarah Tesler. She lives in she's so much, she's a pushing a hundred at the um, Kibbutz Yavna. There's a short, petite woman, you know, 12th graders, you know, macho. That's <laughs> a nice, you know, they know how to play a good basketball game. And uh, Sarah Tesla speaks to our group on the Mozart Shabbat in the hotel in, in Krakow. And she says, and she was there with her twin sister in um, Auschwitz at age 17. And she tells us that there was the men's section, there was the women's section. Of course, that wasn't done because of Frumkite. Nazis had their ideas of why they did this. And there was no communication between the men's side and the women's side, except there was a path where the men were taken to work to their detail and come back, and the women, and it was close to a fence. And they were able to yell out a name, you know, Moshe Schwartz, and somebody would yell out, he's no longer with you know. So they found out that Moshe Schwartz died, or he's still with us, and they would throw out names. And get messages from the women to the men, the men to the women. One man yells out one day, tomorrow is Yom Kippur. Now, they had no calendars. They completely lost any sense of time. There was no day, there was no Sunday, there was no Shabbat, nothing. They lost any sensitivity. So tomorrow is Yom Kippur. Sorok Tesla says to himself, how many people in Auschwitz are going to fast on Yom Kippur? Now, one second. If any of them would have asked a rabbi a Shiloh question, it wouldn't be a question. They're all dying from starvation. 
And Zarathustra says, you know what? I will not eat tomorrow. But just go to work with everybody. Okay. They come back after a full day's work. And she's exhausted. And a man calls out from the other side. We made a mistake. Today's not Yom Kippur. Tomorrow's Yom Kippur. Made a mistake in the calculation. Saratessa says, all right, I'm going to keep going. As much as I humanly can. She makes it to a second day fasting, 48 hours. And as they come back the fence, a man calls out. We really made another mistake. Today for sure it wasn't Jim Kippur. It might have been the day before. It might be tomorrow. We're not sure. And Sarah Tessa looks up to God and says, I don't know where Jim Kippur is. But can you please accept my two days of fasting as if it was Jim Kippur? You know, I had 12th graders there. I could have mopped the floor from the crowd. They were crying. Just to hear this. She was then 90 years old, 88 years old at the time. There's nothing more heroic than that. For a woman to then come to her to show, have a family, and escort her granddaughter to Poland, and then come to our yeshiva students and share this. This is unbelievable. You can go on and on and on with the stories of heroic action, the silent moments of heroism. The Rook told us that the Medrash talks about silent moments. When in Yumiyahu, the book of Jeremiah, it talks about the what will happen when Am Yisrael, the Jewish people, will leave Eretz Israel into the Babylonian exile. And past the area where Rachel, our matriarch, is buried. Rachel al Rachel is fine for her children. Why just Rachel? What about the others? Ah. Remember the story in the book of Rashid, where Yaakov was going to marry Rachel, but then the future father-in-law pulled the past one and did a switch, and it was Leah. So Rachel did not want. Lay out the sister to be embarrassed because Yaakov gave Rachel some intimate signs that it was her, and she passes this on to the sister Leah. Very silent moment of heroic action. No press conferences were called, no headlines on CNN, nothing quiet. God registered that moment, silent moment of heroism. And to this degree, Amisrael continues. Until this very, very day. This big Midrash is an act of heroism itself. Oh Hashem, thank God. So much beauty and so much Torah, and obviously the input of Mr. and Mrs. Chappelle's Ronaldo Abraham to having this develop and the scale that it developed, where it's obvious that. Each and every one of you will go on to create your own frameworks of heroic action. And God willing, the conglomeration of all these heroic acts will lead Am Yisrael to Ozer Yisrael Bigvura. We will stand up against the world as a heroic people 
and continue to glorify God's name as we say in the Kaddish. Thank you very much.